It's time to relax, grab a drink, pull up a chair by the hearth, and have a seat in the Scald Circle to listen to the tale of The Three Advices from Ireland, as told by Casimir. Before we begin our story, we wanted to remind you that we release new tales for free every week. Our shorter tales release on Wednesdays, and our longer chapter stories release on every other Saturday. Find out where you can hear them on our website at thescaldcircle.com. And be certain to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. That way, you'll never miss out on one of our enchanting tales from around the world. And this is the tale of the three advices from Ireland. The stories current among the Irish peasantry are not very remarkable for the inculcation of any moral lesson, although numberless are the legends of pious and good people, the saints and fairies. The following tale of the three advices is the only one of moral character which I remember to have heard. It was told to me by a professional storyteller whose diction I have endeavoured to preserve, although this sobriquet of Paddy Trila or Paddy the Vagabond from his wandering life was not particularly appropriate title for a moralist. The tale is certainly very ancient and probably have found its way into Ireland from Wales, as it appears to be an amplification of bardic triad of wisdom. There once came what of late happened so often in Ireland, a hard year, when the crops failed. There was beggary and misfortune from one end of the island to the other. At that time, many poor people had to quit the country from want of employment and through the high price of provisions, among others, John Carson was under the necessity of going over to England to try if he could get work, and of leaving his wife and family behind him begging for a bite and sup up and down, and trusting to the charity of good Christians. John was a young, smart fellow, handy at any work, from the hayfield to the stable, and willing to earn the bread he ate, and he was soon engaged by a gentleman. The English are mighty strict upon Irish servants, he was to have twelve guineas a year wages, but the money was not to be paid until the end of the year. He was to forfeit the entire twelve guineas in the lump if he misconducted himself in any way within the twelve months. John Carson was sure to be upon his best behaviour and conducted himself in every particular way so well the whole time. There was no faulting him late or early, and the wages were fairly his. The term of his agreement being expired, he was determined on returning home, notwithstanding his master, who had great regard for him, pressed him to remain, and asked him if he had any reason to be dissatisfied with his treatment. No reason in my life, sir, said John. You've been a good master and a kind master to me. The Lord spare you over your family. But I left a wife and two small children of my own at home, after me in Ireland, and your honour would never wish keep me from them entirely, the wife and children. Well, John, said the gentleman. You've earned your twelve guineas, and you have been in every respect a so good a servant that, if you are agreeable, I intend to give you what is worth the twelve guineas ten times over, in place of your wages. But you shall have your choice. Will you take what I offer, on my word? John saw no reason to think that his master was jesting with him, or was insincere in making the offer, and therefore, after slight consideration, told him that he agreed to take for his wages whatever he would advise, whether it was twelve guineas or not. Then listen attentively to my words, said the gentleman. First, I would teach you this. Never take a by-road when you have the highway. Secondly, take heed not to lodge in a house where an old man is married to a young woman. Thirdly, remember that honesty is the best policy. These are the three advices that I would pay you with, and they are in value far beyond any gold. However, 
Here is a guinea for your travelling charges and two cakes, one of which you must give to your wife, the other you must not eat yourself until you have done so, and I charge you to be careful with them. It was not without some reluctance on the part of John Carson that he was made to accept mere words for wages or could be persuaded that they were more precious than gold guineas. His faith in his master was, however, so strong that he at length became satisfied. John set out for Ireland the very next morning. He had not proceeded far before he overtook two peddlers who were travelling the same way. He entered into conversation with them and found them a pair of merry fellows, who proved excellent company on the road. Now it happened towards the end of the day's journey, when they were all tired with walking, that they came to a wood through which there was a path that shortened the distance to the town they were going towards by two miles. The peddlers advised John to go with them through the wood, but he refused to leave the highway, telling them that at the same time he would meet them again at a certain house in the town where travellers put up. John was willing to try the worth of the advice which his master had given him. He arrived in safety and took up his quarters at the appointed place. While he was eating his supper, an old man came hobbling into the kitchen and gave orders about twelve different matters there and then went out again. John would have taken no particular notice of this, but immediately after a young woman, young enough to be the old man's daughter, came in and gave orders exactly the contrary of what the old man had given, calling him at the same time such as an old fool or an old dotard and so on. When she was gone, John inquired who the old man was. He's the landlord, said the servant. And heaven help him, a dog's life has he led since he married his last wife. What? said John, with surprise. Is that young woman the landlord's wife? I see I must not remain in this house tonight. And, as tired as he was, he got up to leave it, and went no further than the door before he met the two peddlers, all cut up and bleeding, coming in for they had been robbed and almost murdered in the wood. John was very sorry to see them in that condition, and advised them not to lodge in the house, telling them, with a significant nod, that not all was right there. The poor peddlers were so weary and so bruised that they would stop where they were and disregarded the advice. Rather than remain in the house, John retired to the stable and laid himself down upon a bundle of straw, where he slept soundly for some time. About the middle of the night, he heard two persons coming into the stable, and on listening to the conversation discovered it was a landlady and a man, laying a plan on how to murder her husband. In the morning, John renewed his journey, but at the next town he came to, he was told the landlord of the town he had left had been murdered, and two peddlers, whose clothes were found all covered in blood, had been taken up for the crime and were going to be hanged. John, without mentioning what he had overheard to any person, determined to save the peddlers if possible, and so returned, in order to attend their trial. On going to the court, he saw the two men at the bar, and the young woman and the man whose voice he heard in the stable swearing their innocent lives away. The judge allowed him to give his evidence, and he told every particular of what had occurred. The man and the young woman instantly confessed their guilt. The poor peddlers were at once acquitted, and the judge ordered a large reward to be paid to John Carson, as through his means the real murderers were brought to justice. John proceeded towards home, fully convinced of the value of the two advices which his master had given him. On arriving at his cabin, he found his wife and children rejoicing over a purse full of gold, which the eldest boy had picked up on the road that morning. Whilst he was away, they endured all the miseries which the wretched families of those who go over to seek work in England are exposed to. With precarious food without a bed to lie down on, or a roof to shelter them, they had wandered through the country seeking food from door to door of a starving population. And when a single potato was bestowed, showering down blessings and thanks on the giver, not in the set phrases of the mendicant, 
but in the burst of eloquence too fervid not to gush directly from the heart. Those who had seen a family of such beggars as I described can fancy the joy with which the poor woman welcomed her husband back and informed him of the purse full of gold. And where did Mick my boy find it? inquired John Carson. It was the young squire for certain who dropped it, said his wife, for he rode down the road this very morning and was leaping on his horse in the very gap where Mickey picked it up. But sure, John, he has money enough, and besides, never the halfpenny have I to buy my poor children a bit to eat this blessed night. Never mind that, said John. Do as I bid you, and take the purse at once to the big house and ask for the young squire. I have two cakes which I brought every step of the way with me from England, and they will do for the children's supper. I ought surely to remember as good right I have what master told me for my twelve months' wages, seeing never as I found what he said to be wrong. And what did he say? inquired his wife. That honesty is the best policy, answered John. Tis well, and tis mighty easy for them to say, so I've never been so tempted by distress and famine to say otherwise. But your bidding is enough for me, John. Straight away she went to the big house and inquired for the young squire, but she was denied the liberty to speak to him. You must tell me your business, honest woman, said the servant, with a head all powdered and frizzled like cauliflower, who had on her coat covered with gold and silver lace and buttons and everything in the world. If you knew but all, said she, I am an honest woman, for I brought a purse full of gold to the young master, for surely it is his, as nobody else could have so much money. Let me see it, said the servant. Ah, tis all right, I'll take care of it, and you need not trouble yourself any more about the matter. So saying, he slapped the door in her face. When she returned, her husband produced two cakes which his master had given him on parting, breaking one to divide between his children. How was he astonished to find six guineas in it? And when he took the other and broke it, he found as many more. Then he remembered the words of his generous master, who desired him to give one of the cakes to his wife and not eat the other himself until that time. And this was the way his master took to conceal his wages, lest he should have been robbed or lost his money on the road. The following day, as John was standing near his cabin door and turning over his mind what he should do with his money, the young squire came riding down the road. John pulled off his hat, for he had not forgotten his manners through the means of travelling to foreign parts, and then made so bold as new inquire if his honour had gotten the purse he lost. Why, tis true, my good fellow, said the squire. Then your servant at the big house never gave it to you last night, after taking it from Nance, uh, she's my poor wife, your honour, and telling her it was all right. Oh, I must look into this business, said the squire. Did your wife say, my poor man, gave the purse to a servant? To what servant? I can't tell his name rightly, said John, because I don't know it, but never trust Nancy's eye again if she can't point out him to your honour. If so, your honour is desirous of knowing. Then do you and Nance, as you call her, come to the hall this evening and I'll inquire into the matter, I promise you. So saying, the squire rode off. John and his wife went up accordingly in the evening, and he gave a small rap with a big knocker at the great door. The door was opened by a grand servant, who, without hearing what the poor people had to say, exclaimed, Oh, go, go, what business can you have here? And shut the door. John's wife burst out crying. There, said she, so sobbing as her heart would break. I knew that would be the end of it. But John had not been in old England merely to get his twelve guineas packed in two cakes. No, said he, firmly. Right is right, and I'll see the end of it. So he sat himself on the steps of the door, determined not to go until he had seen the young squire. And as it happened, it was not long before he came out. I have been expecting you for some time, John, said he. Come in and bring your wife in. He made them go into the house. Immediately, he directed all the servants to come upstairs, and such an army of them as there was, 
It was a real sight to see them. Which of you, said the squire without making further words, which of you all did this honest woman give my purse to? And there was no answer. Well, I suppose she must be mistaken unless she can tell herself. John's wife at once pointed her finger towards the head footman. There he is, said she. If in all the world were the four, clergyman, magistrates, judge, jury and all, there he is, and I'm ready to take my Bible oath to him. There he is who told me it was all right when he took the purse and slammed the door at my face without so much as a thank you for it. The conscious footman turned pale. What is this I hear? said his master. If this woman gave you my purse, William, why did you not give it to me? The servant stammered out a denial, but his master insisted on his being searched, and the purse was found in his pocket. John, said the gentleman, turning around, you shall be no loser by this affair. Here are ten guineas for you. Go home now, and I will not forget your wife's honesty. Within a month, John Carson was settled in a nice new slated house, which the squire had furnished and made ready for him. What with his wages and the reward he got from the judge and the ten guineas from returning the purse, he was well to do in the world, and was soon able to stock a little farm where he lived respected all his days. On his deathbed he gave his children the very three advices which his master had given him on his parting. Never take a by-road when they could follow the highway. To never lodge in a house where an old man was married to a young woman. And above all, to remember that honesty is the best policy. And that is the tale of the three advices from Ireland. Thank you for listening to our story. If you enjoyed it, we recommend taking a look at our Patreon page, as noted in the description below. You can earn great rewards while also supporting us, to keep these stories alive for generations to come. Also, remember to subscribe to us on your podcast app, and leave us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this story. A special thank you to Cat for their support this month. Without your contribution, we wouldn't be able to continue these stories and we truly appreciate it. Visit thescaldcircle.com to stay up to date with all of our current events, news, and much more. Not only that, but you can also visit our story archive of every tale we have ever told. It's sorted by origin and region for the convenience of your listening pleasure. Thank you for listening to our story. <laughs>